0: Welcome everyone, I'm Carolyn Sudecco. And I'm Shanta Lecker, and this is Human Regards. Today
1: we focus on the conflict that exists between interpersonal relationships and systemic realities. We talk about repairing broken connections to music, rediscovering home, red flags with white guys, and seriously, Carolyn, who the heck is Baby Huey? Well,
0: let's start. Let's. What are you drinking? Grapefruit Spindrift. That's what I got spindrift tonight. Grapefruit. Mm-hmm. I've got a limonata.
1: Oh, nice. We're kind of on the same page again. Last week, yes. I had hot water.
0: <laughs> right. I know. Huh? Hot water. <laughs> All right, Shanta. Hashtag porch living. I've been on this for a while. So back in 2021, I started my journey with my spiritual life coach. And so I articulated this vision of me sitting on a porch, doing my thing, living in New Orleans. Fast forward (laughs) to 2023. And actually my vision was for 2024. Oh, wow. So uh, the vision is being well manifested, I like to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Next week we are signing on a house in New Orleans and I will be living there part-time hashtag porch living talking to folks I'll be doing some programming Mm -hmm. from my front porch which I verified has an electrical outlet
1: okay outlet the wi-fi reaches
0: (laughs) all that I we have to order wi-fi (laughs) like we have to do all that Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to it it's interesting with gentrification or those those terms right like gentrification or like moving I've been thinking a lot obviously in these past couple years about what does it mean to be moving especially as an immigrant what did it mean for for me to for my family to come here. Mm-hmm. what did it mean not just for the place we left the place where we were at but the, the place that we are now i feel like i'm being called to a place reminds me a lot of the feeling of the philippines the south and there's something calling me interesting to that yeah but at one time like i i had this very um idealistic view of of my home country right i knew i was from there i had these these thoughts that oh that my life would so much better if i was there and then i had memories of when i was little like six years old and then again at 13 the the two times that i went back to the philippines in my adulthood i was like i'm gonna move back there that's where i belong you know that my people you know Mm -hmm. that sort of thing and then we went in 2017 i had a much more realistic experience of of it Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's what also draws me to to New Orleans. Like I've been there so many times. My sibling, one of my sisters lived there for a long time. My oldest son lived there for seven years. And we've seen horrible things and we've experienced fantastic things and all all of that. My spiritual life coach, she's like, okay, now that this is happening, like you're going to lean into this. It sounds great. Everything's going well. Now you're going to have to come up with a new vision. Is that oppression when I, when I can't like enjoy that? Can I just enjoy it for a
1: while? <laughs> that It's like, you just read my mind. Cause my first thought is like, can you just be present in that vision? Right. <laughs> like, can you enjoy that? And, and just sort of bask in that. That's like a huge deal to me. I I right. feel like that's. Yeah, like wait, hold the phone. Like don't don't well, it's, don't come up with another vision quite cool, right? yet. Yeah. Like
0: especially on. because I'm like a year ahead, you know. Exactly. I'm, I'm like I'm a little extra. I'm ahead like it's like graduating early that seems to be like a very colonized way of thinking like what has white supremacy culture taught me even about my own <laughs> womanifesting
1: i mean especially if if we have this larger consciousness of these big systems around us it's so hard to be present in these smaller moments and even just like live. (laughs) It sounds so basic, but it's like really hard to just be present and just live and not be thinking about the next thing, not be thinking about like that next step or that next level of understanding or the the next move. It sucks. (laughs) I don't want to do that. I think that's why what fixes that for me is like art. If I'm playing music, I am the most present (laughs) I've ever been. I mean, it's like... Kind of frightening how present body mind soul everything is just like in this one thing and it's really liberating to feel that way. That's like contrary to all the all the things that we're supposed to be doing.
0: That reminds me of obviously in, in sports, right? With flow, yeah. With right? when, when yes. you're when you're totally <laughs> yep um, immersed, time isn't a factor. Like you're you're literally only in that space, or your sense of time. Yeah, your sense of time is altered.
1: It helps when it uses all of the stuff, you know, like that's what's the physicality of of sports. We almost like can't think about other things, you know, when like dance is the same, like choreography is like impossible to me. So props to anyone that dances. I cannot. Mm -hmm. I'm terrible. So the idea of having control over every finger and toe and even then interacting with the stage or other people or whatever else is going on or the music and being able to do all of that at one time, it's like showing off your humanity because you're like, look at all all that I can do in this one moment,
0: (laughs) you know? I could definitely lean into porch living because I've been hashtagging that now (laughs) ever since that vision, right? So like for about a year and a half, almost two years, right? I've been hashtagging porch living. It's more like a feeling, right? It's more like it literally is me on a porch in a rocking chair. I already know what rocking chairs (laughs) I'm going to order. What's next is that I enjoy it. There's like this, this sense of like conquering that I just want to dismiss. Like when I, when I see like skilled dancers, Right? Or skilled movers. I want to sit there as they're learning that choreography.
1: Have you ever watched So You Think You Can Dance? Because that's kind of what it is. (laughs) It was like one of my obsessions when it was on. To me, like what is so amazing about it is every single piece is brand new. So choreographers come in and literally invent these short pieces that are specifically for TV, specifically for this program and those dancers, and then teach it to them. And then they perform it. And it's all really fast. It's not like all the singing competitions where they all Always it's like karaoke. It's like glorified right. karaoke. Right. It's like original choreography every single show. You could just see behind the scenes with them receiving that choreography, working through it. Sometimes they're crying, sometimes they're getting injured, you know, because dance is so intense. And it's always imperfect because they do it so quickly. <laughs> they get like two hours with the choreographer and then they get to rehearse for a few days and then they have to perform it. It's wild. I Wait, don't know two,
0: just two hours to learn, two hours. To, to to receive the choreography
1: dancers are amazing there's all these ridiculous dance studios in la and a lot of them will put classes or maybe like a specific dancer or car- choreographer comes in and they'll put that on on tiktok or youtube or something and so you watch that like you literally watch them learn and you watch the class come in and do their spin on it like millennium does this all the time and they are the coolest videos because yes, they they do it that fast. They they learn it, they learn this choreography in an hour or two, and then perform it in a way that is like mind blowing.
0: That gives me some inspiration because I'm going to document myself learning a new musical instrument. This house is in the same neighborhood as a Musicians Village. There's the Ellis Marsalis Community Center or Music. Mm-hmm music center and they have where like community members can take lessons I want to relearn and re re re-skill myself not that I was very skilled I I wasn't very skilled in piano Uh, I didn't practice during the week I only practiced like half hour before our piano teacher would show up relatable Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) so I, I don't know if I could try another instrument we'll see Maybe harmonica.
1: Harmonica is fun. I am so grateful I learned piano at a young age because I get flute music and it's like one note at a time. And I was like, why did I not put this together? That that would be <laughs> not hard. <laughs> not that I wasn't great at flute. Like I I didn't, you know, get really into it, but just in terms of the the music part, like having to read the music and learn it, it was just night and day. Piano is the best. I just think it helps with everything. I started playing when I was five. I think I took lessons for 10 years, but I got to the point. Where I was in Sonatina Contest, then it was Sonata Contest, and they were so stressful to me. I was miserable for a week before those contests because I don't... Have you ever done something like that? Yeah, what is that? So, okay, so this, this is the 1st hearing of this. Right, so a recital is like, okay, that's just a performance. You're in a room. For me, it was like all my piano teacher students, we'd all play a couple pieces and our families were there and people clapped. A contest is nothing like that. I feel like we always had to drive into Chicago and go to these really scary buildings when I was young. So to me, it was scary, you know, into a music building that's part of some kind of university. You walk in and it's just this grand piano and three people sitting, sometimes more than three, but usually three sitting at a table kind of like to the right of you and behind you playing. So like you couldn't see them when you were playing. They were right over your shoulder you walk in, you don't say anything. I mean, literally there's no like conversation. There's no small talk. I could frame it more like an audition, but it's not an audition. It's literally just a contest. So you go in and sit down. I always had to adjust my seat because I was super short. So like I go in there and first thing was adjust my seat, which always took a second. They would let you play some scales to warm up. You tell them I'm starting and you start and you play whatever piece. And so some pieces might be six minutes Others could be like 26 minutes, depending on the type of contest, contest that you're playing in. You finish, get up tell them thank you and walk out. That's it. And then you wait and you get scored. It was so terrifying. I honestly hated it so much. I don't even know how I did it enough times to finally be like, I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) It was kind of like taking a test with a musical instrument. So I think that was part of what got me out of classical lessons was I was not willing to practice two hours a day. You know, I was playing sports too. Like I just, I wasn't willing to do that. I wasn't really improving. It's like you get to a point where you're fine, but if you don't invest... two to three hours a day and that you don't get any better. I think I hit a wall.
0: (laughs) um, What, 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 what is the aim? If you win the competitions, then. When you get to say you won the competition. I know I that's,
1: I think that was part of my issue. I just didn't connect with it. All this performance anxiety came out and then. Mm There wasn't really a point. <laughs> like, I, it, you know, it's like, that's how. Did
0: you even have brackets?
1: You, along with 25 other people, could get a gold medal, and that was the best you could do. That type of thing. And I suppose if you're good enough, then maybe that leads to other opportunities. But I was never like that pianist, you know, like I was never that person that was going to be the top three out of 300 that would then get called on by someone scouting for a music program in Chicago. Like I, I was never at that level. That's not that different than sports when you think about right. it. Like you go and you play a game. What's the point? <laughs> like You go and All you prepare. Bracketology,
0: Bracketology. Championship, you yeah. gotta dominate over others
1: exactly but then at the end of the day even if you get the championship it's like what was the point like that, that that's not going to save the world like it, that's it like that is the outcome that's the end that's the end right. game but then is you, have that your trophies?
0: you have a shared experience with other people like fans or your family, like there are other people involved. You're not so like
1: classical, it, it depends on the instrument you play, specifically classical piano. You know, like when you think about a symphony, for example, uh-huh. you don't think about a piano, right? Right, right. Classical piano is like if you're a the best, you're a soloist.
0: <laughs> so um I just think of Elton John. Yeah,
1: that's like a whole nother world. And like the way that I play now is blasphemy. Like I don't play classical music anymore. I burnt out on it. I played it for long enough that I mean, if you forced me to, I could read the music and play it, but I wouldn't choose to if I was just by myself. I wouldn't ever. It's so technical and the limitations on like pop music in terms of rhythm and and all this stuff. I'm not trying to sound pretentious, but
0: just like classical guitar I hear. Or like remember when Oh, you were young in the 90s when like <laughs> I was grunge. alive but like grunge right yeah, like, wait, every, of course yes everyone was disparaging these bands for just playing chords because it's not like guitar wait or, people
1: were like, not happy about that I feel like that's just music like that's how songs are written well people, <laughs> not in the 90s only had, it's true in the had, 50s
0: Right, (laughs) right. There's always going to be that disparaging thing, right? Like that. There's always going to be the haters.
1: In the the, fifties, is the same. There's formulas. There's you know these. There's four or five chords in the song. You're good. to go (laughs) that is just pop music like whether it's grungy or rock from the 50s it's all that way and that's that's why it's so accessible that's why people love it because you can hear it and it's familiar even though it's new
0: okay so in these okay so you're describing like a, a world and a culture that is very new to me classical piano competition and i'm sure that it resembles other sorts of like very competitive cultures we make competition out of everything
1: literally everything it ruins everything (laughs) it sure does (laughs)
0: piano is such a beautiful instrument and music is so beautiful. And then yet we're going to create this competition that's going to make someone hate it so much and disengage (laughs) with it.
1: I never hated my piano. I kept playing, but I took a break, picked it back up in college because my roommate rented a piano. And so my sophomore year, we had a piano in
0: our apartment, which was Oh, that's so cool.
1: And we played it. Oh, our poor neighbors, because, you know, we'd like, we'd like go out, out, and do all kinds of things and then come home at like 2am and play and sing. Yeah, our poor neighbors at six, seven, nine, seven, They really got it. But they never complained, probably because it was just a rowdy apartment complex. And that's when I started songwriting as well. Very weird. I like remember that I loved it, but I didn't love it in the context of the classical competitions. I'm going really backward here, but there was something I wanted to ask and I forgot. Have I ever talked to you about the fact that I've been to the Philippines before? No. You were talking about your family's experience and stuff there. And I was like, have I ever mentioned I've been there? I feel like it's gonna Yeah. Oh my random. gosh. <laughs> when was this? Tell me. Oh my gosh, Shanta. Um, it was like related to work for my dad. His company like sponsored scholarships for nurses in Manila. So when he died, there was a scholarship fund that was created specifically for that. It's just so weird. I don't know. I'm like, the, what Oh small. my gosh. The two people that I remember the most from his job before he passed away were both Filipino. So I felt like I ate Filipino food for example really young all the time because we'd come visit him at work or they would do like staff meals and that kind of thing those two people that we kind of knew the best that's like who fed us so then yeah so we eventually we took a family trip that was such a weird trip because actually in Hong Kong we experienced like really blatant racism also I don't know the history of this but there is this very visible anti-Filipino racism that exists Mm -hmm. in Hong Kong so I'm racially ambiguous I feel like I'm People think I'm everything, to be honest. And when we were in Hong Kong, we went to this club with my brother who's white and two of his friends. And then my sister and I are both similar comple- you know, similar complexion. I was way tanner than I am now. So like pretty, pretty brown. <laughs> and we went to the club and were really put off. Like people were not nice to us when we first walked in. And it was like my sister and I with these three white men. Further back, we find somewhere to settle into and start talking. And people realize we are American. And suddenly oh. we were like, (laughs) the most popular people there afterward my brother told me he was like honestly a bunch of people probably assumed that you guys were working and that's why you were with us and I was just like oh my god I just had no idea it was just really jarring because the it was like the energy shifted the second we we spoke loud enough that people could hear us it was like oh Americans like let's go talk to them. It was a very eye-opening trip. It was like an amazing trip. I loved so much about it and also probably learned a lot at that time. I was in my 20s, so (laughs) learned a lot. I don't know. I have like a soft spot for the Philippines and Filipino culture. Even before I met you or (laughs) Tony, because of this connection growing up
0: and and to my dad's work. (laughs) You haven't told me. And and that just affirms again, Shanta, mm-hmm. that everyone, I'm going to make a very, very blanket statement that everyone who knows a Filipino has <laughs> <laughs> to the Philippines, there's something about uh, About that, Like there's something that, at least when people talk to me about Filipinos, not necessarily about me, but like generally maybe their experiences of the Philippines or of Filipinos. And most of the time, it's very, very favorable. Actually, literally, Shanta, last week, I'm on the plane to go to New Orleans. This man who's a pediatrician, older than me here in the Bay Area. Oh my gosh, of course, he's a pediatrician working in public health. I'm like, (laughs) you know a whole bunch of Filipinos, don't you? he was really sweet because he was like oh yeah well I don't want to sound like oh my gosh like you're a Filipino and you know that I'm just gonna all of a sudden say like all these Filipinos are great that I work with or whatever <laughs> yeah you know so at least he was sensitive about that like not coming out there like oh are you Filipino which I'm used to also mm-hmm. you know like oh I know a Filipino or I dated a Filipina or I did, whatever yes like, oh. and I, I I understand now that people are trying to make a connection. Back when I was younger, I'm like, oh my God, stop. You know, don't tell me all the the bad words, you know, in Tagalog. <laughs> you know, don't lead with that. Just don't do
1: that. It's like minimizing. I feel right. like, yeah, then right. It almost feels like someone is just projecting yes. this tiny amount of knowledge they have onto you.
0: Right. You know? But this, like... this, this, <laughs> this man on the plane, this pediatrician on the plane did not do that awesome right yeah which is which is very nice we talked a lot about imperialism we talked about forced migration and labor so yeah so all all of that was there and he was very excited when I when I said like these sorts of narratives are in the Filipino community at least in the Bay Area they're being expressed like through art right Mm. through dance through song through people writing Mm. not just scholarly or academic writing about about that but about their experiences, about about oral histories of people in the nursing profession. And then, of course, with COVID and the statistics about how Filipino nurses are disproportionately dying. This pediatrician and I were talking about this on the plane to New Orleans. It was just such a nice conversation to have with a person who's not (laughs) Filipino. I'm just going to say that was surprising for me. There are people that are on all various arcs of of their own learning and relearning my assumptions of like okay this is milage white guy going to mm-hmm. talk to me about the, he's going to talk down to me like the presumption that he was going to talk down to me mm-hmm. or he was going to talk to me like oh my gosh i love all filipinos which is worse i think in my in my yeah view. that's the worst that is the right. worst <laughs> it, it's the worst cuz cuz i always come you know, back like, oh, with really? like you know
1: you know all, you know all of them like, right. He, you know, everything or like, on. you obviously don't
0: know my family, some of my family members. <laughs> like, I don't even like all, you know, Like yeah, I exactly. exactly. <laughs> that did reinforce or it affirmed that I I, I don't want to presume. I was proud of myself because I, I I was leaning on my intuition.
1: Yeah. And he did things to cue that though. I mean, like right. he was yes. giving you, he was giving you some green flags in that initial interaction. Thank you. Right. Yes. And that's huge because it's, completely valid to assume the red ones like that's how I feel if yes. you're in yeah. those situations it's valid to assume those red flags based on
0: experience right and 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 you know what Shanta I've, I've lived so much of my life assuming those green flags mm. to be honest yeah. right assuming the green flags and I'm the one that has to come with my vulnerability I'm the one that has to come with second guessing my own <laughs> sort of hesitancy. Same, Same. <laughs> right? Yes. And like that—that's what we're—that's what we're taught in this. That we yield to the white guy.
1: Literally, I just told you a little bit about my dad. Mm-hmm. You would have loved my dad if you met him. I mean. That is the weirdest trick to play on a brown
0: girl. I <laughs> idolized
1: my dad for the longest. I mean, he only died in 2017. So for me, like, it's like been five years and and I still feel that way. Like the, the year that he passed away was, who do I look up to? You know? and And so like my literal dad was that white man <laughs> and such confusion, you know, like, Discerning things then, when not only are you socialized a certain way, you know, and we've talked about that before, because Mm -hmm. if you're in sports, like who's the leaders, you know, (laughs) like if you're in this, who's leading the way? So not only was I socialized a certain way, but I mean, literally in my interpersonal interactions at home and in my, especially with sports, like my dad was a big sports person, it's still a struggle for me to not assume those green flags in certain places and that has really hurt me in a lot of ways (laughs) which is
0: not good yes and and i'm still like somewhat surprised when that comes up for me it it still amazes me it still makes me wonder and curious i'm gonna jump to like dating life it wasn't ever i hear a lot of these narratives about especially in the filipino community that marry white guys like we're told that white is better And stuff like, and and I'm sure we are. I I don't remember hearing those overt things. Like no one ever said, "Oh, you should marry a white guy, or you should date white guys." I actually I remember wanting to date Filipino guys, but then I was told growing up, like they're all related to me. I didn't think that was available. So Mm -hmm. what's available? What's ubiquitous in my world (laughs) right now? Uh White (laughs) guy. <laughs> so the white guy's gonna ask me to ask me to on a on a date or you know and then and then I get into a profession white guys mm-hmm. and I I'm sure that's most most professions and and it's sports a lot of dismissiveness that I know I put out there because of years of harm mm-hmm. years of you know institutional oppression and power hoarding and lots of these things and yet a lot of my very 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 formative and loving relationships and not just and we talked last time about platonic relationships Mm -hmm. even right expansive platonic relationships have been with white guys how can I at in in the same hand with the same heart say that this oppressive dominant culture force that pisses me off Mm -hmm. like how how can I also say that it's formed me it's helped to form me yeah right
1: you got my uh, I mean I think this is how we live we can find really beautiful things in these interpersonal relationships mm-hmm. and that's how we can function
0: <laughs> that's how yeah but I, I need but to function I, <laughs> I, I, I'm i trying to function here but I and I need my therapist to help me with it, so.
1: <laughs> like, this is so interesting to me because I mean it's like a little battle going on between your inner interpersonal Ability, which is I think that that's like a gift that you have. You relate to people, you listen and hear and see, and and not only just that, but also genuinely interested in things. Like there's a, a layer of wanting to understand things just for the sake of understanding. It's very appealing when you're building relationships with someone. It's reminding me of of like how we can have these really incredible things either internally or interpersonally and still exist within the system. And like right. when my dad was still alive let's say the two of us go out to eat together. We're having this adorable father-daughter moment and going out to eat and just having dinner and catching up. And he wasn't a big talker. So like, honestly, if I went out to eat with my dad, I probably talked like 85% of the time. (laughs) Like I'm, I'm the same way, weirdly. So if I'm with someone who's like more of a talker than me, then I'll do the 15%. But we got to dinner and it's this great, you know, sort of memory for me. And then on the outside, all the people around us are assuming the weirdest things about the two of us. They would kind of like exoticize me or fetishize me, maybe not say it to my face, but like, oh, this older white man is on a date with this young brown woman or they're not together. So we arrive and it's like, they're looking around like, who are you with when they see us interpersonally and internally, I'm having this memory. I'm having this great experience with my dad, but then sort of socially, it's like, like totally misconstrued. So another funny story, my brother... So another white guy drove cross country with me once and one of our stops from, so from Chicago to LA and one of our stops was in Vegas and we get to the hotel and we go to check in and they gave us a room with one bed, even though we'd specifically asked for two. I have an ID that says the same last name as him. Oh, (laughs) He's white and I'm this way. And so like we give them our IDs. They immediately think that we are like newlyweds (laughs) like you know, and kind of like giving us like these weird looks as we're checking in and and we're like, no, 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 we need two beds. Like, we don't want one bed we don't want the king so we had to spend like a solid 10 minutes trying to just be like change our room it, it wasn't that big of a deal but it's just one of those things again where it's like we're having brother sister bonding time cross-country driving in that interpersonal relationship we wouldn't even consider those things and then stick us in the hotel lobby we had to check in and all these social pieces so like our last name and the fact that we don't look the same race, basically, that's what it came down to is, you know, like, we didn't look like we could be related in that person's mind. So we must be married. <laughs> <laughs> we can have those interpersonal relationships and like have really beautiful human interactions and connections with people and exist in those systems and exist in these socialized ways where like we have one, we have no control whatsoever. And two, you know, while it doesn't negate the the beautiful interpersonal things and the the internal things, it does exist despite those things. And I feel like there is something about people like my dad and honestly, people like the guy you talked to on the plane. (laughs) where there's almost this innate understanding of that. And and I feel like to me, that's like how I can get over that hump. It's like, oh, okay, I can like relate to this white dude because he can see that and understands that. And we can have this human interaction and treat each other as human beings and not, you know, these like racialized, socialized beings where we're making all these assumptions about people and also acknowledge that we exist within these systems. It's like, I don't know, when I, when I find... <laughs> When I find a white guy like that, I'm like, hey, we're good. Like, we're cool.
0: I think, Shanta, that, okay, this is my, my biases, right? So we're, we're talking about all the different levels or facets, right, of of, of bias, of microaggressions. And I'm going to say this. As a person of color, Why why am I, I'll speak only for myself, why am I so acutely aware of all those levels? All the time.
1: You can speak for me. (laughs) Speak for me.
0: It's so heavy. Yep. It's so heavy. I'm not just going to say white guys. I'm going to say maybe dominant culture people in general. I mean, because this is not just white people. This is...
1: Yeah, we're, we're oversimplifying for the sake of right. conversation. Yes, sure. we're
0: oversimplifying. I'm just going <laughs> to yes. show you what I have in, in my mind, just generally, who who takes up most space. I do get resentful. I do get resentful that other people aren't also recognizing that nuance, all the various levels of, of nuance. And then when I tell them, I have a very strong sense of agency. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Which is amazing. Yes. I tell
0: I tell them this is what you're going to do. You you get to opt out. So often I never get to opt out. I don't know if that's how I am because I'm so curious or if it's because I know that I've been betrayed not not just me, people in my lineage, people from where I'm from. We've been betrayed and we've been mistreated. There's a part of me that is not going to let you off the hook. And yet I am still carrying so much of that effort to yield to that energy. I don't want to do that no more. These days, I still ask myself, do I want to be in a space? Do I want to be in a Zoom room with all just white people? You know, do I want... i know i'm like please help me (laughs) you know there's there's a, a conference that i'm supposed to go to and i just got the program with all the pictures of the presenters and i do an audit i do an audit every time i get these magazines who's writing the articles what are they writing about who what do they look like I do that.
1: Yeah. When I do that same thing again, a little extra work (laughs) in your defense, (laughs) because you're sounding, you're sounding a little judgy right now. You're like judging yourself a little bit in your defense. You don't have a choice. You are interested in the content and whatever's going on there. I don't know exactly what it is, but but you're interested in that and there are opportunities potentially to learn, to grow, to network, and you have to self-protect. You have no choice. And so we've become very attuned to like tools of self-protection. On one hand, it sucks because it's so much work and so much energy and all this like preparation almost, you know? I turned down the opportunity to speak at a conference. I looked up all of those things and was like, I'm 99% sure I'm going to be triggered by being in that space for three days. I don't want to do that to myself. The ability to do that, though, yes. to me, yes. I'm like, that's valuable Like yes. for, for us to be like, we know what it takes for us to feel healthy and whole. We will discern what that looks like, like mm-hmm. privilege in a nutshell that we don't have that's when we right. think about positionality. So like societal privilege, um, when we think about posi- positionality in the U.S., that is privilege we do not have. If you don't hold white privilege, then in any academic, business, corporate, sports space you have to rely on those self-protection I call it that probably because my therapist like two years ago told me that's what it was but but like these tools of self-protection I wish we didn't have to have them but it's just like the reality of the society that we're in I wish I had them when I was younger I mean that's the weird part listening to you talk about the that extra work and having you know like the onus to explain things and and like wake up the white guys to things and I'm like yeah it's like literally my family i mean i was doing that with my family Mm. that is so exhausting i mean the numbers just purely the data on transracial adoptees and mental health and suicidality Mm. and mental illness are like are staggering and most people don't know this because people like to ignore that adoption is trauma but in transracial adoption it's like your entire racialized identity is almost like an accessory you know, like my Indianness was like treated like an accessory growing up. That in itself is like a war. It's like this lifelong war where oh. I'm trying then to find ways to not only create some kind of semblance of culture for myself that is part of why I have a, a soft spot for Filipino culture and Filipinx people, because that was a part of that. When I was younger, Mm -hmm. you know, and so not only trying to create some semblance of my own culture, but also like explaining how that whiteness was harmful as much as they love me. That whiteness was and is still harmful. It's like lifelong war that transracial adoptees did not ask for. Some people just sit out. Everybody is not not in it. I am really excited, actually, to have Mila on. I mean, it's directly related to this, like in terms of how we have to interact with the world around us. All of that extra work that we have to do as people of the global majority and and all these other pieces. Mm -hmm. This is probably problematic because I'm like conflating things, but I'm just talking about myself in some weird way. I had to like announce to my family that I was adopted because that was erased. Then I had to announce to my family that I was not white because that was erased. And then I had to announce to my family that I'm queer because that was erased. Oh (laughs) So, So like people talk about coming out of the closet. People talk about coming out of the fog. Mm -hmm. When you're a transracial adoptee, and I happen to also (laughs) identify as queer, there is no linear binary coming out. That's not a thing. That's the war I'm talking about, where it's like this lifelong thing where you can opt out. Sometimes I do. I won't say I do one thing every day. And sometimes I'm in it fully. It really is like constant conflict. It's almost like the more that I really express those things, you know, and I'm honest about those things, the more the harm sort of emerges Ugh. it's like all of those systemic issues but then boiled down into like a little family unit <laughs> a lot of transracial adoptees end up in work related to anti-oppression it's like in the day-to-day in our interpersonal interactions with our family we're like living out these conflicts I don't know so then it makes all the other conflicts in those systemic ways, like so relatable. Like it makes, it makes me want to change those things. It makes me want to be part of that education and part of the change and the shift. You
0: already know that you're maneuvering in a way that is already contrary to how the world maneuvers. I'm
1: curious because we were talking about these interactions with like dominant culture and like green flags and red flags. And so I'm like, how can we help each other right now? Like, what are they? (laughs) I would love to like better identify those things. And that's one of the conversations like I wish I'd had as a kid, you know, but I think I never got. And I don't know if you did, but I guess I just, I didn't really get those from my family, obviously, because they they weren't going to be like, here's some red flags when you meet white people, Shanta. But... (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like I have friends whose parents told them that. I mean, I definitely know people who learned that stuff growing up. And so I'm like, what are they, Carolyn? Like what in your mind, what's what is like a red well, flag and a green flag, or how do you discern if something is somebody's safe?
0: Maybe because of internalized colonization and, and racism. When I grew up, I grew up with with my mother specifically, one parent who was very differential to white people. Like they were always right. Mm-hmm. There was like you wanted to be like them, like you wanted to look like them, like that. And then my father would be not, not like the opposite. But my father was like, a person to person. You know, like that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very, if someone was cool, they were cool. Like my, my And and to be honest, my dad worked at the phone company where I know he he worked with other immigrants. That That's where my dad learned a lot about other cultures. His coworkers were, were very diverse, whereas my mom, working... In uh, a convalescent home, was working with all Filipinos, actually Filipinas from her hometown, mm-hmm. who were friends of hers. They were talking Tagalog to each other at work until they were told they couldn't. And then my dad had Latino, Russian, um, other Asian, and white people all all around him. The red flags that I saw, or the green flags that I saw, were were I saw I saw that in my parents' behaviors. I saw it. When when my mom would would be really deferential, and then of course like all the white nuns at my mom's work. Oh, oh my gosh, I'm just now making this connection. She was a teacher in the Philippines who taught Filipinos to be teachers, but the Thomasites mm-hmm. and that history, right, is, is part of that. Whereas my dad, he in, in internalized being an American and coming to America. A lot of my red flags really have come out of unfortunately romantic dating situations that makes sense though you know? yeah yeah <laughs> unfortunately that's,
1: right that's i think that's where the whole red green flag thing probably originates in a lot of ways like right
0: in terms of how we use it if there's a red flag if someone just randomly says to me oh you're from the philippines <laughs> I, I get yeah i could kind of <laughs> say no Yep. right or oh or, yeah for sure nope. or when people say oh well where where are you from i'm mm-hmm. oh, like sunset district
1: same like Chicago.
0: What do you mean? Right, <laughs> exactly. And then now, like, there's something in me now that's like, come on, bring it. <laughs> what else? What you got? EJR David, psychologist, writer, Filipino. He has his take on on resilience and how resilience has kind of been weaponized.
1: We've talked about that, and I'm like yeah. fully on board. But please
0: lay it out. Like what? Because we we definitely talked about this. Yeah. Yeah, like and and this this narrative in our in. in in Western society that the society builds the resilience Mm -hmm. of of people when in fact that resilience has resided in people. We should be questioning the actual society that demands this resilience of us.
1: Maybe I'm resilient in the sense that I've learned how to navigate those things, but I still have super thin skin and I'm still super sensitive and I know that about
0: myself. Well, our society's framing of that, of that characteristic as as something that's pejorative or that's something that's not valuable again resilience framed as as a power as like resilience strength
1: yeah as, as, as it's a, almost treated like a synonym for strength
0: right strength and dominance
1: well, i mean you said earlier how you kind of like in certain spaces you you said i think you, you yield power i think is the phrase that you used and in my brain i'm like Okay, well, you're only less powerful through the lens of whatever oppressive system is present. So, like, you're only less powerful through the lens of whiteness or through the lens of capitalism, you know. Mm -hmm, But, like, your power mm -hmm. has not gone anywhere. You're not yielding Mm -hmm. anything. You're protecting yourself. And so are you spending energy on that? Yes. Resilience as strength and resilience as admirable. It, like, really bothers me. Because when you are forced to be resilient... In a society that continually oppresses you, <laughs> like what that does, then is it forces you to use all of this energy just to keep yourself safe, physically, That's right, emotionally, mentally safe in all kinds of right. all kinds of ways. You are literally in danger, and you have to use your energy and your time to stay alive, to stay safe, to survive. Mm-hmm. And then what happens to all of these other things that like you could be using that energy for. I just read something about this and I don't know if it was a joke because I could see that. I'm not really sure where I read this. It might've been something funny, but (laughs) like Albert Einstein, like making a big deal about, about these so-called geniuses that we learn about in, in our history lessons. How many geniuses died in in internment camps? How many geniuses died in these horrific violent practices of enslavement in the U.S. Like how many geniuses do we not know about because they were forced to be resilient, because they were forced to survive, before because they were forced to expend their energy on finding physical, mental, emotional safety, even when sometimes that was impossible. I hate the resilience as strength thing because it is so dismissive of so many so many realities you know it's like it's a way to to reframe things so that it's like you can feel good about being oppressed I'm like no thank you
0: and then dominant culture white guys and white women get applauded for being vulnerable really that's when I'm like "Mm, no you know who baby Huey is you know the reference to a character. Mm, okay. I don't think so. Definitely <laughs> my generation. Baby Huey is like this big. It's a cartoon character. I'm not even sure what Baby Huey is. I always equate like white fragility and Baby Huey. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't,
1: I don't
0: even know what Baby Huey is. But I'm laughing. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it's
1: just like this. Who is yeah. Baby Huey? Oh my gosh. Okay.
0: It like, says a chicken. <laughs> oh, what, what did it say? <laughs>
1: Baby. Huey. Okay, Wikipedia is uh telling me that baby Huey is a gigantic and naive duckling cartoon character. Is that the correct? And first appeared in Probably. Probably. Say <laughs> this out loud. Quack a doodle doo. Released in theaters in the 50s was like the first appearance. And then Baby Huey is described as strong, clumsy
0: blissfully unaware yeah, yes blissfully <laughs> unaware like that's the character blissfully unaware that's a characteristic and kind of like i
1: have a cousin uh, oh yeah. boy oh wow this is starting to get slightly ableist now apparently baby huey had a relative named cousin dimwit
0: who was a skinny duck <laughs> yeah oh my God. okay yeah we're we're, <laughs> we're we're going down the the rabbit hole of of Characterizations and stuff. Okay, what's your piece this week, Shanta?
1: Thinking about like what brought me some some goodness, some wholeness this week. One I will say is music, and it's so funny because. I wrote down, can I talk about music on my notepad before it came up today? And I didn't tell you that. And it just sort of happened. So that was sort of serendipitous and cool. I just been playing music a ton lately at home. And that has definitely been, I don't know, it's kind of a lifesaver. Concert season kind of kicked in, you know, (laughs) I went and saw Maggie Rogers um, and it was amazing. Her vocal ability is just like through the roof. So that was fun. I wrote a song, which is, you know, really rare these days. So that was, I don't know, like cathartic, but also just felt like me being at peace. And so I was super sleep deprived that night because I stayed up (laughs) writing this song and then got up in the morning, but but it was worthwhile, you know, it's worth doing and maybe it will... Maybe we'll end up on my Instagram at some point if I feel like it, I don't know. The thing that actually I wrote down that that stuck out that I saved is a post from another transracially adopted person that I follow that does all this work in education. Her name is Hannah Jackson Matthews. It seems simple, but it felt really profound to me. So I saved it. And her post said, as an adopted person, the concept of home has long felt foreign and disorienting. It has taken years of care, community, and compassion for me to learn that home is not where you're from, but where all your attempts to escape cease. You know, in my 20s, I wrote all these songs that were about finding home and searching and being in between. You know, all the time, I just always felt like I was in transition. I was in between things. Maybe literally, if you looked at it, you'd think I was talking about being torn between, say, like L.A. and Chicago, but so not what it was about. <laughs> for me internally, it was like that feeling of, of not finding somewhere that I wasn't trying to escape. I was 18 and I made the decision to come all the way out to LA to go to undergrad. There wasn't like a really super tangible, practical reason for that. I mean, I wanted to work in film, but it was less about doing that and more about getting out but when I really settled into LA so after college I had been in LA for a while I didn't feel like I wanted to escape you know I wanted to stay and I I felt like it made sense for me as a human in all kinds of ways and like socialized ways but also in artist ways and and then I left you know for work (laughs) and I spent eight years back in that that zone where I was trying to escape Seeing that was so affirming. <laughs> Everything that it took for me to get back to LA, it's been a, a journey. <laughs> I'll just say that. It's been a journey. And seeing that was so affirming in reminding myself that I'm in like the right place, not only geographically, but I'm in the right place in terms of community, in terms of the people that I'm investing time in. And I don't feel like I need to get out. I have my moments where I'm like, man, I really, it'd be nice to like be on a mountain. We've talked about that before, but but not permanently. (laughs) (laughs) I I just love how she worded that, you know, like the concept of home has felt disorienting. As uh, an adopted person, it's like, All of the sort of societal norms, all the cultural norms that we have related to home are flipped. I mean, they don't make any sense, (laughs) you know, like me coming into the world was me literally being traumatized. I mean, it's like that is what my birthday signifies for me. To get to a place where I feel like I don't want to escape, I'm not in between in the sense that like I know who I am and I'm really glad that I'm here. It's beyond peace, but even, you know, prioritizing connections like this one, that is home. You know,
0: <laughs> mm, no shut It up. is.
1: So I yeah, so I mean I didn't even think that through before I said all of that. Sorry, it just kind of came out. But I did no, save that post yeah. and um the fact that home it's starting to feel less disorienting. My compass is like it's connected back to the earth, and I can actually see where north is now.
0: <laughs> Human regards, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the, that was <laughs> that was the purpose.
1: But it's like we need like a pillow. You know, like we need somewhere to to like lay down to even recognize right. maybe that we want that. I mean we right. need
0: we need that's why this container is important, know? right? Yeah, this so is it's, me it's this is me laying
1: down like, yeah. <laughs> on it's the human a space, regards pillow.
0: <laughs> a weighted blanket, perhaps. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, that's not a bad idea.
0: <laughs> you know what's brought me peace this week, as you know, my my twin sister. And I have been part of this docu series that's being filmed uh, based on uh, a nu- nutritional study. and the the researchers, this was a multi multifaceted research study, but based on the microbiome and gut health trend or interest mm-hmm. in in the world that's going on. twenty one pairs of identical twins have been in this study. Of the 21 pairs, four pairs of twins were are, were selected to be part of this docuseries. We've done a lot of filming in the past year. And last week we did final interviews. Not, not that I have anxiety about it, but I was like, oh, gosh, you know, I don't know if I if I want to put the energy into like really dealing with this again, mm-hmm. you know. And it turned out really lovely. And we had fun filming. I had fun filming. We're going to film again, I think, next week, which is interesting because this film schedule is keeping me from really hashtags porch living. (laughs) (laughs) This week, it has brought me peace because this experience with being a part of not not just a research participant, but with my twin sister. For right now, uh, it feels really good. I have to say it. I mean, it's just because I'm Filipino, but... Like I feel like I represented my people well. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, and I yeah. I I was just myself and that's it. That was all that was expected of me.
1: Follow human regards on Instagram at Human Regards Pod. Please remember to subscribe, follow, rate, and share from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Production and music for Human Regards is by me, Shanta Lecker. You're the best for being here. Take good care today.